Our guest this week is Dr. Nicole Truesdale, who is an anthropologist by training and an abolitionist scholar and teacher who is dedicated to knowledge without borders. Check out her website, Dr. Nicole Truesdale, and you will see that she is a well-credentialed scholar, educator, and researcher who's been in some of the top and most respected spaces in the United States, Beloit, LSU, Michigan State, Brown, the Smithsonian, and more. Go check it out. D-R-N-I-C-O-L-E-T-R-U-E-S-D-E-L-L.com. Check out her website. She joins us on this episode of the Parlay in All Blue for discussion on how memory, our history, our creativity, our culture can serve to understand, deconstruct, and abolish oppressive systems and institutions. Gil Scott Heron, when asked about the meaning of his song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, said that the first change takes place in your mind. Similarly, Dr. Truesdale in our conversation points to the questions we ask, how we learn, how we deconstruct, and how we disseminate the knowledge to others. With that, I point you back to her website, drnicoletruesdale.com, where you can support her work on her Patreon page. It is worth it. And while you're in the supporting mood, be sure to support the Parlay in All Blue by commenting, liking, subscribing, sharing, all of that as well. We need you. And thank you for what you've already done. Hey, we appreciate you. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Parlay in All Blue with Dr. Nicole Truesdale. Thanks. So Dr. Nicole Truesdale, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I am I am really excited for this conversation and have been excited about it for a while, ever since I came across your work on social media and started following you and looking at the readings in your in your book club and all of those things. So I'm really excited about this. Thank you for, for doing it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I want to start off with, we're going to get into your work around abolition. And we're going to talk about how memory plays into that. But I want to start just sort of just level set the audience. You say that you are an anthropologist by training and an abolitionist scholar and teacher. I think we know what an anthropologist is, or maybe we do. <laughs> so, but what is an abolitionist, what's an abolitionist scholar and teacher and how does anthropology help you achieve that goal? Mm, okay. So let's break down abolition, right? So abolition essentially, right, is the act of abolishing something, a system, a practice, or an institution. So when I think about that definition and pull it out into thinking about teaching and scholarship, for me, an abolitionist teacher is one who teaches about those practices, systems, and institutions so that people can actually see the foundations of where they come from, because you don't understand what you're abolishing unless you understand what it is first. And so as an anthropologist, right, um, I'm a sociocultural anthropologist, but 
anthropology has different subfields. And I've actually gone through two of the four of them. So I started off in biological forensic anthropology, looking at the idea of human difference via the concept of race and the skeleton, right? So I used to work on forensic cases. My master's thesis was on looking at non-metric racing of the skull to determine race classification in, in human populations. And that led me into kind of medical anthropology where I was looking at genetics and the relationship between genetic research and the DNA being transcripted in the early 2000s. What is that implication for the idea of race? That led me into sociocultural, though, because that got into the whole idea of politics and the law and what does it mean to define people by the concept of race? So anthropology even though I went through the different subdisciplines, the whole my whole foundation was looking at how do we understand human difference via the concept of race. Now, when you start pulling that apart, you're getting into a lot of structure. So that led that's why I started led into this idea of looking at the relationship between race and the nation state via citizenship in my research in the UK as a way to understand what is this idea of race and how do people belong to these things that we call the state or the nation state. What does this mean when at the same time, those who are racialized, those who aren't basically white or read as white in that society don't have full rights of citizenship? So that research really got me into thinking about, well, none of this shit works. (laughs) None of it works. Like people aren't actually allowed to access their full rights as citizens of these countries. And looking at the UK helped me understand race in the US better. So when I came back to the US to start teaching, I realized what I was teaching was I was teaching people these systems and foundations. And then also being in these systems and foundations myself, let me realize that we can't continue to try to placate the system because all it does is take from us while expecting more and more of us. And that led me down to thinking about, okay, what's the relationship then between teaching my scholarship and having people understand and believe their reality so that when when they have the tools and the knowledge, can they themselves start to break away from those systems, both individually and then be able to do that collectively? So that for me, the whole thing all ties together. Got it. So what are you in your work? What are you aiming to abolish? I mean, (laughs) basically, we're trying to abolish the systems of oppression, right? And that might sound really naive, but that's what we're trying to do. And so what allows these oppressive systems to maintain themselves? It's the nation state. It's the modern Western nation state. So it's like the concept of the U.S., the concept of the U.K., all these kind of European nations that were the founders of these colonial projects, right? For me, what I'm trying to abolish is the systems that created us in these categories. So we're abolishing essentially the idea of the nation state, which people might see as naive, but it's really not when we think about what these European nation states did to the rest of the world. So it's really trying to trying to think about a balance and a correction because living in life is no longer living in life, it's just surviving. But if we are meant to be living and all we're doing is surviving, something's got to give. And others are we're going to give our bodies or the system's got to give. And I'd rather the system give (laughs) than us as humans giving anymore. Okay. So now I I have to tell you that what you're setting out to do is difficult work, right? (laughs) It's difficult work, but uh, clearly something that you are passionate about. And by being a scholar and teacher, you are prepared and continuously preparing yourself and advancing your tools or what have you. What is your start on abolition work? 
you know, where does it where does it start from a a human perspective? Like, what's the first thing that you do? You gotta get somebody to read. You gotta get them to do some push ups. What you gotta get them? What what do we? What's the what's the first step? I think the first step is having people believe their reality, right? So you have to believe that what where you're in and what you're where you're in and what you're doing is not working for you. And I think that becomes really hard because let's take the U.S. for example. We live in a capitalist society. We know that, right? And it's a racial capitalist society that that lies to us really well. So we we are taught from the time minute we're born to buy into these systems, and that it's basically an individual fault if you can't make it in this system, right? And no matter what you do, no matter how much you work, like and if you and, and think about two thousand and eight, two thousand and eight, and that the, the the you know the recession that happened really did a lot for people because. The state took it as an opportunity. The U.S. took it as an opportunity to skirt responsibility for the system basically collapsing on itself. It's essentially said, well, now it's an opportunity for y'all to start doing your own grind culture, right? And in that construction of that grind culture, which led to this idea of the Ubers and the ideas of the Airbnbs, right? We saw new corporations rise, but at the expense of who? Individuals who were fed this idea that really now it's an opportunity that the state collapsed. So now you can pick up the burden and do all that. But what has that done to people? We're now in 2022 and people are burnt out. They're tired. And we're also living in the aftermaths and in the still and in the middle of a pandemic that is not really giving the attention to it because, again, we're getting diverted to this idea of, again, the economy. So first thing you have to do is believe this. You have to believe what the state tells you. You have to believe what the state has shown you. And what the state has shown us is that it won't, get, it won't do a damn thing for us. It will not actually support the people. So when you actually start to believe that, the next step then is, okay, so what does all this mean? And for me, that's where the education comes in because you have to then, once you believe the state you're in, once you believe your bodies, this is another thing too. Part of this is coming back to your humanity, because for you to believe yourself, you have to feel what the system has done to you, not just think. Now, and, I've, and I had a long time to have to really understand this myself, right? I, had, I can logic my way out of anything, right? Sure. We, can, we can tell ourselves anything. And so even if you can theoretically understand the system, you can theoretically understand capitalism until you feel the impact of it in your body. And then realize that you don't need to feel this way. That will then open up the space for you then to have the education. So it's a coming back to your humanity by coming back to the reality of what these systems do to our bodies and then our minds and our communities. And then it's like, okay, so then what does all this mean? So for me, I come in and think about it as an educational piece. And how do we break the system down in ways that are digestible to folks? You don't have to have a PhD to understand this. <laughs> you really don't. Right. No, but right. Right. But you have to be able to have somebody explain it in ways that make sense in your location. And so for me, I'm just continuing the long line of black radical thought, honestly, because in black radical tradition, because back in the 60s and the 70s, right, 50s, 60s, 70s, it was education first. So not just the Black Panthers, but SNCC right down in the South, freedom schools. Education was always part of counter-revolutionary action because you have to know what you're countering so you don't reproduce it. Right. So for me, that's the first step, the first two steps. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. And thank you for that. And so when you mentioned SNCC and so Mississippi, I am I am a Chicagoan who was educated in the great state of Mississippi and my son goes to school there. So whenever someone mentions Mississippi, I can make a connection. And one of the things that I think that people miss when they talk about Mississippi Freedom Summer and activists, young activists going to Mississippi in the South, 
They thought they were going to do voter education, but what they found is that the people first said, we need education. And so they founded freedom schools and freedom schools that were, listen, doing what would be at least, I don't know if you'd call it Afrocentric, but it was certainly Black-centric. They were starting with culturally the blues means something to you. So let's talk about some famous blues artists. Let's talk about your history and center it from there. So I definitely get that and appreciate it. I will also tell you on the believe standpoint, first you have to believe it's not working for you. I will tell you that we had an episode this year with uh, Dr. Tammy Greer, and she's a political scientist at Clark Atlanta here. She does a lot about electoral politics, and she also does about radical or, or sort of revolutionary groups and, and that kind of thing. But she, she's deep into data about elections and populations and that kind of thing. And on the show, and I, and I played a clip of this on my social media, she gave us that the Blacks in Atlanta are not doing well. And she mentioned that, that the income gap was between blacks and whites in Atlanta, it's like 120,000 to some 30,000, right? And if you looked at the median, and so people argue, well, what's the median? And the median is like 80,000 to 20,000. So it's like it's not changing. And then people will say, well, they must be talking about Atlanta and not the metro area. So the reality of it is, is if you come to Atlanta, you will see a lot of Black folks doing well from a middle class standpoint, and meaning how they're housed and how they drive and what they wear and all of those things. And someone may, may, may include me as a part of this. But I think what people, there were two things that struck me is the amount of pushback from Black people saying, well, they need to get a CDL license or you need to get a master's and not understanding that Yes. That income gap persists across industries, education levels, what have you. And so what I want to say is, is that so Home Depot is located here, just to use as an example. What, what, and I don't know this specifically for anybody listening from Home Depot, so include any other company. What the data says is that Black women who have an MBA, and you could take the 10 companies, 10 biggest companies in Atlanta, are earning less than white men with an MBA. And so it's, it's, and so the part that really bothered me is, and I'm talking about us, and I, and I hate to talk about us because I love us, but first off, if we're comfortable that there are people that forget that they're earning 30000 but that they don't have health care, which is a part of the system not working, they don't live in areas where the it's environmentally friendly, where there's a tree canopy and they can shade their houses. If we're comfortable with that, there's something wrong. And then the other thing is, is that if you are doing better than the person with 30,000, the answer to me is not, well, get a CDL license, go get an MBA or what have you. It really bothered the hell out of me. And I have to tell you, it's the video that our show has had the most engagement with. So that belief in the system. So when I was saying that's hard work is that it seems to me we have a number of people that have become comfortable with doing better than poverty and not understanding that 
doing better from the the standpoint of what you're paid or you know that you're you you you're doing better than someone else doesn't mean that the system is actually working right yes and i think this is where we're coming at an impasse right now right because there's a way that Going up in this kind of system, right, there is an idea that it's, again, an individual. It's an individual fault. Therefore, it's an individual thing you can do, right? It's also generational because you have to think about what was going on, right, from the 40s, 50s, 60s, that generation, thinking about and then who is now leading a lot of these institutional spaces, that generation is still bought into the individual, right? And so, right, so we're seeing a shift, though, over time and as the generations after the kind of boomers, I know we love to hit on boomers, but it's really about the economic system in that generation that they were coming up in. There was a performance and the idea that there was abundance, right? There was, so there was a, there was a construction of a reality that many have held on to, but that reality was still an illusion. So now you've got younger generations who were like, you, we got fed that you got fed this dream, right? You got fed this dream that if you worked hard, that if you were respectable in some way in these spaces, that you could somehow be successful. And if you didn't, then what you needed, what was education? That's coming out of the whole 90s rhetoric, right? Of no child left behind and the push for people to go right into education as a way to support themselves in the economy. That was nothing more than I consider another Ponzi scheme of the state to get us to go buy into because who's got the most student loan debt right who's got and who is not able to actually enact those the, the, those kind of those kind of values or those kind of ideas but when we see the aftermath of it right and we're seeing generations after who are like we have no access to that the structure is literally on our necks now and not only is it on our necks we have debt and now we've got an older generation of folks who we got to take care of plus kids we got to take care of and there is no give Right. And I think that's the kind of feeling of the you got to feel the and it sucks, but you got to feel the pressure of the system, because if you don't feel that pressure and believe that it was never it will never let up, you will then continuously make yourself buy into the idea. I just got to keep working. But folks are seeing it now and 2020 did something, whether people want to admit it or not. Oh, yeah. You had folks be able to go into their homes. Not everybody. Essential workers couldn't. But now we don't even care about essential workers. Let's be real, right? So yeah. we were fed this idea of the essential worker having to still work to maintain the basis of the economy. But folks were able to be at home and get paid. So for the first time in a very long time in this kind of country, we felt what if what we got, a, and I'm going to say it this way, we got a little taste of those who did get money. We got a little taste of what the 1% does all the time. Because they sit there and keep getting the money and they don't do the work, but yet we are fed this idea that they're always working to make all this money. And in reality is no, they only have that money because we work. One one thousand percent. Twenty twenty did do something. One more thing I was wanted to just add on the education piece, and I, I think um, there's a big shift. Both Nixon and Reagan. Yes. Looked at what was happening in the 50s and 60s and you have educated black people. So when you know, when you see Huey Newton and I think, you know, it's kind of like by rote people will say, you know, Huey Newton had a Ph.D. But I think what they're missing is, is that Huey Newton was an, a person who had educated himself. Angela Davis who was using education to the point of freedom. You also had the anti-war movement. There's a lot of young white kids who now I'm using my education to question the system. You had women saying, you know what? 
I don't have to live in this patriarchy. I don't have to be subjugated. Why can't I get a credit card? Why can't I? And so real talk, I think people don't understand that those two men and their ideologies and around them. So we got to change this, make sure that education is coming back to the point of labor. And it's no mistake that then in the 80s, we get Wall Street, the movie. We get the image of the 45th president as success and Trump. And this is how you should be. And many people now, you know, sort of all of that radical talk has just changed into let's go into labor. And, and by labor, whether you are accountant or if you're busting bricks, <laughs> you're still labor. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, it may not be physical labor, but you are you are doing something in support of that. So. Thank you for that. And I, I think that kind of and there's more I want to come to to help set the stage for come back to some things. I just want yeah. to for people to be able to have some tangible things yeah. to, to to latch on to. Can I add on to that, Mark, real quick, though, with the rate thing? Because you're picking something that's really important because that education was so high in the 60s and 70s and the political education of, of people. Right. What yeah. you also see Reagan do, though, is decimate the culture. They, he decimated, the Reaganomics decimated creativity, it decimated the arts, and it decimated the humanities, those locations that also allow this kind of education to come through as well. So when you don't have people have the ability to be able to think and, and create and be, but instead they're fed into a very, into the 90s, right, into what you're saying, these kind of worker ideas of education, you completely remove folks from the ability to actually conjure different ideas of what it could be to live. I'm so glad you said that because... One of the things that comes out of that is now we have public schools where you have a music teacher that is serving five schools. It used to be a time that first grade people get a recorder, right? I'm accessing music and I can play things. And then you get a clarinet, a trumpet, a drum or something. Drama's gone. You have art teachers. It blew my mind in the late 90s because my mom is an educator. Is that, you know, mid 90s, late 90s, maybe earlier than that. You have someone who's an art teacher and they're doing four or five schools. And I'm like, these kids aren't getting art. And so drama's gone and plays. And so everything is now just about testing and service. And, and so, no, that that is great. That is I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, because that is something that I think people really miss. In it. And as someone who majored in what's known as STEM or what have you, I think people don't understand how it's is slick dangerous in the sense of, you know, everybody let's do something in STEM because you can get paid with it or you can earn with it. But missing out on sort of creativity, missing on how to jailbreak, it, it's 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 just another way of serving. And I don't want to I want to make sure that it, for people listening, I and Mark ain't putting you down. What I'm saying is I bought into it too, right? Yeah. I've been a part of it. So I'm not talking about anything or any path that I have not gone down. And also I'm saying for everybody listening, get your money, but understand that there's something else going on. So to transition a little bit, let's to, to, to go into sort of that creativity in those things. I am very interested in the concept of memory, right? It's just what does memory mean and feeling and those things? And how does that work in abolition? So just first start, what's your definition of memory? I mean, memory is, is bringing the past to the present, 
right? So memory is the conjuring. It's the it's the slippage of history and time that allows us to have different understandings of our present day, right? But our memory is heavily constricted and our memory is heavily predefined for us in these types of societies because we're only given one set or two or one set of memory from one perspective. And that perspective tends to be from the state, right? Who is coming out of a colonial project. So memory is also a tool and a location for us to engage with in order to uh, uh, end the systems we're in as well. And so, so when you say it's, it's a, the state, the nation state, the country, the, the institution is, has a predefined set. What are, what does that look like? So from a practical standpoint, what is a predefined set of memories? What does that look like? Oh, the origin story, right? The founding fathers, you know, and and how it conflates. So like we get this memory of the pilgrims coming over because they were, you know, political refugees. (laughs) And then from there, we get these founding fathers who were, you know, the bastions of democracy who created freedom for us, right? That's a memory. But it is memory that is constructed by those who actually created the whole damn country, right? And so, but what is that memory telling us? It gives us an idea of this kind of docile, very high-end type of of ideology that our founders were for the betterment of all. But we know that's not true, right? right. So that's a memory, but that's a memory we're fed, and we're fed that memory through what? Education, so K through 12. So yeah. memory is also history, but history through whose lens and whose eyes. Okay, so help me, help us, help people listening out. If we are going to abolish that memory, right? So if we're going to change the system, change the state, or what have you, what are some ways that, and particularly for Black people, right? How can we reconstruct our memory? How do we rebuild our memory? And how do we use it to free us? How do we use that memory to abolish? I think we use it by asking ourselves a couple of things, right? One, is this true? Because when we have these ideas, let's take, let's, so let's take the idea of slavery, right, in the U.S. as what we're fed. We have to think about who is teaching us these ideas, Right. And that's really important. And if you're learning them in an institution, you have to ask yourself, does that institution reflect me and my community? Now, there's a way that when we go into these institutions, they're trying to remove us from the communities we're in because they're trying to give us another idea of who we are. And the ideas of who we are, when we we put it through a U.S. lens, which we have to remember, the U.S. is founded upon racism, whiteness and patriarchy. Right. Whether it's wrapped up in what we call capitalism through a Christian lens. So we have to remember how the institution, how the U.S. was started. And we think about how that's filtered into our education system. We have to ask ourselves, well, who is this serving? And does the actual story word fed make sense in terms of my own personal history? Right. So this is also about learning and remembering our own personal histories, our own personal lineages, our own families, because it's about that lineage. Right. Because we come from other people. We are our ancestors. So if you are being fed this idea that and let's think about what we're seeing now, especially I'm going to take Texas and in the kind of and the the K through 12 education and the textbooks. Right. By making slavery seem as if it was indentured servitude and slave and enslaved peoples were happy go lucky. and, And, you know, they were fed well by their by their enslaver, right? 
and you from that location and you start to ask your mama, your grandmama, you start to go through that lineage and you ask yourself, okay, I'm being told this, but how did this, how is my family? What's going on in my community? How has that been? Is this true, right? When those two stories collide, this is where as an abolitionist, I say, you got to believe your own personal history instead of having that being supplemented by what the institutions you're in is telling you, right? That's the first step. But then the question is, do you know your own family history? Do you own? Do you know your lineage? Do you, are you in your community? And I think this is where we start to see the break of the 80s with Reaganomics and the, and the Reagan policies really implement. We're seeing the impact of it now in the, in, in the present day is that that breaking up of this idea of the breaking up of the ability to be in family structures to actually believe where you're coming from and to understand and believe the histories of your own people. That was something these institutions really broke down because it told us to believe the state. It told us to believe the institutions. It told us to believe in what we were told versus what we have been, what, what we've been feeling this whole time, right? What our people have told us this whole time. So I think that's part of the first way that we think about memory. We think about it by claiming back our history, but Fine. then we, Right. So when you do that, there's a way that you have to then break apart the hold of I'm going to say it this way. This might, might make people <laughs> uncomfortable. We also got to start breaking the hold of Christianity because there is a way that the the Christian mindset via these institutions also has removed us from part of that lineage because historically our peoples come from a stolen peoples, right? Who had different cosmologies. And so when you're in the deep South, this is why I talk about spirituality and abolition together because things like African-American hoodoo gives us a different location of memory making and a history that lets us break up what it means to actually, quite frankly, be Black in the U.S., right? Because we're fed Blackness through a deficit-based lens. We're fed Blackness through this kind of... And think about Candace Owens, right? What she is talking about, Blackness, is nothing more than parroting whiteness's understanding of Blackness, right? It's a deficit-based understanding, right? Well, we have if we don't perform like whiteness, then we ain't shit, right? That's yeah. not true, but that's a narrative that we're fed consistently. So what? how do you break that? You got to break the hold. And that hold comes through institutions. And one of them is the church. So when we start to think about breaking that up, we can bring in other histories that kind of will be intention. That tension's needed, though, in order to start to crack foundations. Yeah, yeah. Now, so listen, first off, you are on the show for this, right? So <laughs> here's the one thing that I know, and as someone who's, who who identifies as a Christian and raised in in Christian family and all of those things, I know damn well that Marjorie Taylor Greene and I are not praying to the same God. I, I just I just know that, and, and, and so I know that just just on one thing. But I also think it's really really important for people to understand and listen to what she's saying when she's saying Christian nationalism. That's not yes. just a, that's not a throwaway line. The other thing is, is so you talked about Texas and this could be here in Georgia, it's in Michigan, Wisconsin, and this pushback, you will hear people saying, I am anti-CRT because <laughs> it goes against my religion and my faith. And so I'm not critiquing Christianity or Islam or anything. But I am saying this, the way the state, the way that Ron DeSantis is using it, the way that Greg Abbott is using it, 
the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene is using it. They are not using Christianity to bring you closer to God, to make you whole spiritually. Am I am I am I hitting? Yes. Or I would say they're bringing you closer to the God they want, which is the white Christian God that needs you as a labor source for their continued nation state. Right. So it, it, you're right. It's not the same. It's, but it's, it's the Christian nationalism as a whole, because even this idea that teaching CRT is against your religion is telling on yourselves. Right. And I tell people it's all telling the time. Telling on yourself. Now, because all CRT is is an analysis. It's a structural analysis that allows us to look at the ways that racism embeds itself in structure, particularly the law. That's all it's doing. It's it's telling a truth. It's a truth teller because it's breaking up and it's allowing us to see something different. But if you're saying that's against your religion, that means you're against a truth teller, which is asking, I'm going to ask you then, what is you? What is your religion trying to hide then in order for us not to be able to see the truth? Because if you're talking about coming to a light and having a light shine through your religious practice, CRT then begins, gives you another light to use. So when you want to push back against that, because then you also I hear how people say all the time, look, my kid learns this and, and they're white. They're going to feel bad about themselves. That's also very telling because if you don't know yourself. If you're learning a history and it makes you feel bad, you might want to ask yourself, why do you feel bad, right? But instead, you're going to use and weaponize your Christian white God via the nation state, right, to basically shut down that history, which also then does what? Shuts down memory, right? So you're doing doing the work of the colonizer once again because the colonial projects used again Christianity via the Catholic Church to justify its actions worldwide. So all you're doing is then bringing back that colonial mechanism of religion that is not actually spirit, it's a mechanism of oppression. And I think we have to separate those two when people are talking about God. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? No, no, I, no, I think that's, it, it, that's important. And I will also say this is that it's telling on yourself that you assume that, okay, if my child hears that, they're going to feel bad. They may say, man, this is wrong. I'm going over there with Dr. Truesdale and trying right. to break it down. <laughs> How do you know that they're going to feel guilty? They may feel empowered. They may yeah. say, you know what? We don't have to do this. People have been trading for years. There have been systems around, you know, countries and neighbors trading for years. We maybe can come up with something else. So when when I hear that, I, I like you, you are really telling on yourself. So so thank you for that. And actually, I do want to to come. Well, let's stick there for a minute, because I think it's important. And we are going to hopefully if we get if we can get this person. So, I, you know, listen, however you connect, I, 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 there's a person in my mind. I don't want to say her name that I want to come on the show to talk about Haiti. And I think it's super important for people to understand how voodoo, voodoo played yeah. into the revolution in Haiti and breaking down the system. People don't want to hear that. And then how after that, the demonization yes. of African, of indigenous African religions that survived the Middle Passage and came over, whether that be Candomblé in Brazil or Santeria and Cuba and in Puerto Rico, of how those things were just, how those other cosmologies, is that the way, am I using the right term? Thank you. Look, ding, ding, ding. Uh, <laughs> we're used uh, for, for, for survival. So, so that is super important. So I'm glad you did take it there. 
And I think is that's really important because those traditions, right, are about a balance. They're about a duality and they're about righting a wrong. So that's the first, we have to remember, whatever your oppressor takes away from you first is a source of your power. Period, point blank. So when you go into the historical record and you listen and you read about what the different European colonizers did, whether it be the British, the French, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch, any of them, the first thing they did was to remove move those from their spiritual practices by moving them from their land. And so the first folks they tended to take were actually the warriors and the priests in order to break up those cosmologies, to break up the ability for folks to engage with the land, engage with their practices, and bring spirit down to resist. So when you're taking that away from folks, and then you see what happened in Haiti, right? And you see the mechanism by which Vodou and the calling down of the Loa, in order to essentially make something as unthinkable as breaking away from enslavement thinkable, right? That is a power that will scare any oppressor. So what you said, they will demonize it. The same thing in the U.S. We have hoodoo, as mentioned it before. This idea of we never resisted. I have a couple of TikToks about this, how we, we always resisted because the practices of understanding our relationship to land and spirit, but also knowing we were never meant to be enslaved. We were more than just an imper- a, a source of labor for a colonizer who was too lazy and incompetent to be able to do their own work because it really was an incompetence too because you had to have skill in order to work those lands, right? Again, people, it pisses me off. I'll be very frank when we disrespect our ancestors like that, when we're talking about how they were somehow unskilled and wanted to do a choice and they never, they were docile. No, the, the, you can read newspapers, the number of poisonings, <laughs> the number of breaking of, of tools, the number of, of being of running away. That was why they kept having these hard black codes and, and, and slave codes coming in with those slave controllers because black folks were always pushing back via their spirit. So the whole Grigri bad, the whole conjuring, right? We were always trying to use work with spirit in order to break the system that was breaking us. Yeah, listen, I am. It equally pisses me off when I hear, you know, the shirts of, uh, you know, there's something that was real popular. Dear, dear racism, I am not my ancestors. These hands, and I'm like, no, you're not your ancestors. No, we are not. not our ancestors because no. we, we, we. Listen, whether in Barbados, Jamaica. Denmark Vesey in Charleston, South Carolina. Yes. Charles DeLong in Louisiana. Yes. We have a history of rebelling. And then the other thing is we had a guest and talked about Natchez, Mississippi. There was an enslaved man who was brought from Mali, who's an actual prince, a learned man, because he was the Islam that ran the plant. He, he made the person. So it wasn't just he was, you know, hoeing and growing and, you know, all of the things involved in agriculture, which is a skill. At a time when agriculture was the economy, we got to understand that these were highly skilled, highly trained, highly knowledgeable people. We got to just understand that. He did the math. He did the understanding of the crop rotations and and the production of the things. So we are not our ancestors in that. We just really have to stop it. And I would really... I really encourage people to visit plantations and ports of slavery and to read slave narratives and to also read African literature. I, I'm really someone who's fond of uh, Chinua Achebe and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and those things so that you can begin to see that we were whole people with whole ways of being way before 1619 or what have you. One of the things, so you talked about one of the, 
things that an oppressor does first is taking away sort of your tools and your power. And we talk, we just hit on religion. I want to hit on uh, where we started or kind of talks at some point in this about creativity and how does music and, and sort of drumming and rhythms and all of that play into memory and abolition? I mean, that's our history, right? So we have to think about how do we how do we recover a, a history that we have been purposely removed from, but also was tried to be destroyed, right? And this is where the intelligence of our ancestors comes in, because when they came on those shores, off the shores of, of Western Africa, on various locations, especially in Brazil and the Caribbean, yes, what they did was they carried things both on their heads, like grains in the hair, but also through the music and through and through the songs and through the dance. So when we're when we hear the drum, say it. So my practice is uh, Ocha Lukumi. So when we hear the drum, the drum is giving us a history. When we hear the stories, it's giving us a history. When we hear the music and the lyrics, it's giving us a history. And we have to understand something. The European is the one that told us that culture is only through one or two mechanisms and ways, right? The European is the one that said that history can only be through a written record, while they also destroyed written records that we had. So don't believe we have oral history, but we also had written records that were purposely destroyed, right? But the, you can all, but we always had different modalities of understanding that history. And so when we think about music and dance and song and and what that reminds us of, right? That's a way that we can also understand cosmologically, cosmology meaning how we understand and order the world. We can understand through a more indigenous slash African lens that it was a multifaceted understanding because it was about cultural growth, not material gain. So the what was where was where the energy where the memory making was focused on in a lot of indigenous cultures is in these kind of what we would call creative arts, but it was just the culture because there was no separation between understanding of living in life, spirit as above below. It was always considered in this kind of circle of what we call life, right? Yeah. So in the present day, when we hear about when we see the music and hear the music and hear the dance and, and all these different types of cultural means. Again, what did the state take away from us? Music, dance, culture. We talked about that earlier, right? Yep. Because those are the things that also bring folks together. And it's also what we both remember in the past. We also make new memories in the present. And that's also dangerous to a state that needs us to buy into its very, I'll call it very blanding <laughs> um, and graying of what it means to have living in life. When we bring in that kind of artistic mechanism, this is why countercultures usually start in music. Counterculture usually starts in art because that's what brings different memories and different histories into the present day. Yeah. You, you know, and as you're, you're sitting there, as you're talking about that, I'm, I'm thinking back to this point of the, the predefined, memory and origin story that sort of, so we get kind of a prefix culture. I'm beginning to to connect some dots here. One of the things that's striking to me, and I'm a, I'm a huge jazz fan and jazz is is, Mm. is created by Africans in America. It's uniquely created here. There's genius in it. It is a high, high art form in the United States and pretty much every major city, Cleveland, Chicago, Chicago might have two or three of these, Uh, New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco. There's a symphony orchestra dedicated to playing European concert music, celebrating 
and reviving the memory of Beethoven, Bach, Mozart. And I'm not saying this is bad music, so that's not getting ready where I'm getting ready to go. But I think it's really odd that we have cultural institutions that in many cases are subsidized through tax dollars, right? That keep the memory of Mozart alive. And Mozart never came to America. He he wasn't at if we if you believe in the Boston Tea Party. He wasn't there. Beethoven <laughs> wasn't there. He didn't. He wouldn't have even known what you're talking about. He wasn't in World War One. <laughs> you know what I mean? He wasn't in any of that. But John Coltrane, <laughs> Thelonious Monk, Billie Holiday are here in the United States. The highest art form created in the United States, per me, is jazz. Right? Just that's created indigenous to the United States. Jazz. You have jazz at Lincoln Center in New York. You have um, SF Jazz in, in San Francisco and Chicago has an off on and off kind of Chicago jazz orchestra. But you don't have a lot of institutions that are there preserving the memory of jazz. And that was created here. And so when you're talking about that, that breaking down and that sort of what happens in public, that's striking to me that whether a person is can pick out a Beethoven, they know who Beethoven is, but many Americans, black, white, or whatever, have no idea who Duke Ellington is. And now I'm on a rant, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull myself out <laughs> just sort of let you uh, keep going and react or what have you. No, but I think it's important because that is part of what the state does. It, cre- it needs to create memories for us, right? And so we have to, again, remember, this is about the construction of essentially whiteness in the state. So what whiteness does, it just takes anything it can and puts it together. So this idea of a classical mm-hmm. music, right? It's supposedly a high art through the European, on a European continent, right? Even though it's mostly, not it's not the West, but it's still a European construct. It'll take it and then feed it to us as this is classic. This is high, right? And this is what is funded because who's funding these? Those who sit in power. And so those who sit in power need to have that same idea, ideology reinscribed. So when we're talking about music and art, it is not about us having a plethora, like you say, of jazz and understanding the melodies and understanding how those jazz artists were using and manipulating notes in order to talk about present day circumstances, right? It's a beautiful form. I'm not a huge fan of jazz, but I appreciate it because Mm -hmm. it really is a way of using music and notes to talk about societal chaos, if you really think about it that way, right? And a Billie Holiday singing singing about strange fruit. Who do you uphold in the nation state as the embodiment of your cultural phenomenon? the European um, that is now constructed through a white lens or someone like a Billie Holiday talking about lynching through music. Yeah. Right. One is truth. One is a myth, but the myth is what the state needs to maintain itself because the truth would actually break that myth. Yeah. Now, thank you. Thank you for that. Let me ask you this about the inside of our humanity and abolition how do our emotions, whether it's humor or or anger or love or any of those things work in abolition? And I will tell you what sort of prompted me on this is I was reading the text from a speech that Toni Morrison gave. And she talked about some of the early slave narratives from Equiano and Frederick Douglass or what have you, and how they were written very factual 
and that a lot of the, whether it's brutality or even familiar love of like Frederick Douglass takes some time in one of his narratives to talk about losing his grandfather. It's one of the only time emotion shows up. It's like they they were conscious that I need to tell the story about what's happening in enslavement, but I'm leaving out what it feels like. I'm, I'm leaving out anger. I'm leaving out that I, I, I was in love with this person and they were taken away. They left that out of those things. And I wonder how emotion or the lack of being angry or laughing or smiling or any of those things plays out in modern day and either helps or hinders abolition work? I think it's, it's a great question. And I, I would say it this way. There's a way that we have to understand, again, let's talk about the system we're in, right? And we think about whiteness as the construct of it. There's a way that the idea of the human was completely narrowed in these kind of projects, right? So humanity, because we were not considered fully human, right? Those who did not subscribe to a very white male landowning continent in the constitution was not considered a full human being. So when you think about that, and you think about someone like a Frederick Douglass writing at that time, who's trying to, who's trying to break a system, who's trying to abolish slavery, right? So as an abolitionist, you realize and you have to understand the system and the and the people you are going against. Even if, if he had emotions, they, what would that mean to a non-human being, right? So the idea of emotions in an inhumane system does not allow you your humanity. It's actually weaponized against you, right? So I think when you read those things, you can see the strategy being deployed at that time in order to get those issues out and so you start to abolish these oppressive systems. Now, in the present day, though, that does not necessarily serve us anymore because through time, we then start to suppress those feelings. We start to hide those. And then we are told, right? Think about what we were told. I remember being going into higher ed. I was told all the time, you know, you have to have one face at, at, at work, another face at home. You can't bring your full self and right. be the strong black woman and don't be upset. Don't be the angry black woman. I'm six foot three. So if I'm walking into a room, I'm always hyper conscious of my frame. So kind of, you're always kind of taught by society that you can be strong, but not be seen. You can be tough, but not, but not actually emotional. So what does that do? It actually teaches us over time how to dehumanize ourselves. And that's part of the strategy the state needs us to be in so that we inadvertently actually are docile, even as we're pushing back, because we're not believing our emotions till it, till it kills us. Mm-hmm. Right. So we think about early death. We think about I've had the last one of the school schools I worked at, small liberal arts school. The first two black women to ever be tenured there. The first one was tenured, not was was only tenured in the 2000. I want to say 2008, and the one after. And this is this is ridiculous, right? Both of those black women who were first tenured at school are now dead. One by her own hand, the other a year after she retired, right? Because that is what happens when we don't actually allow ourselves to feel and, uh, and believe that these systems are killing us. We don't allow ourselves to be angry at the fact that we have to go to work and have people who cannot hold our own bathwater tell us that we have to continuously prove that we need to be in these spaces when they were just given the damn, the damn open door, right? So to abolish a system, you again, to believe the system in order to abolish it, you have to feel what it is doing to you because in feeling it, and for me, it was anger. I had to learn how to work with my anger because I was angry, but the anger was, I was, I tried to channel, funnel that anger, right, into productivity. That's what capitalism tells us to do, right? We'll just keep working and do something else, right? So right. I'm making these 
programs, trying to make space. But at the same time, I'm making programs for others and making space for others. I'm steady killing myself because I'm not allowing myself to believe the fact that all of this is bullshit. All of this is doing is taking from me. I'm, I'm, I'm not allowing my anger that lets me know that you talking to me sideways, but I'm supposed to just take it because we're in a public setting, but you can act a fool, right? Because you occupy a white male body or a, a white woman body, right? And I think that when we allow ourselves to realize our emotions don't need to overtake us, but we have to be able to talk with our emotions and ask ourselves what our emotions are telling us and then have that emotion sit with us as a way for us to navigate. That is part of breaking a system that's within us. Yep. So the emotion helps us break the system in us, but do do so, you're going to feel some shit. You might be sad. You might have grief because a lot of this is actually dealing with our grief, yeah. but we are not taught how to deal with grief, right? And we're seeing that collectively now because people have lost a lot of loved ones. People have lost jobs and lives and all these other things is a, a whole collective, regardless of race at this point, but we are not taught how to deal with grief. We are taught just to keep going and that going can no longer happen. So abolition for me is breaking apart the dehumanization we have been taught since birth to buy into ourselves so that we can then actually start to see ourselves and then seeing ourselves, we can see one another because we can't have real community until we do that either. So abolition is about community, but we can't be in community because we are also told not to trust one another too. Think about it. I don't need friends, right? I'm going to hustle and do all that. Well, at the same time, that makes no sense because human beings need somebody else to be take care of them. Human babies cannot survive on their own, right? Like the concept makes no sense, but then we are taught over time that it it is the only sense that is made. And in doing so, we're removing ourselves from the beauty uh, and the struggle because it's not just utopian, right? We're moving ourselves from the reality of what it means to be human, which is sitting in and being able to work with others via working with the emotions that come out of it. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to... So Linda Villarosa has written a, a book, Under the Skin, and Linda was the editor, health editor at Essence, and now she's New York Times Magazine writer. And over the last 30 years, she's written just about every major article on Black health. And she did the medicine and health work for the 1619 Project. She has a chapter in that book of where she talks specifically about well-educated, high-capacity very successful Black women in particular, and a lot of Black men who are operate and work and perform in so-called elite white spaces and the mental health toll that that takes of suppressing the emotions, of not wanting to appear angry, or even not even wanting to appear too happy, just constantly being on and, and, and performing. You also just mentioned there about community, and and, and that takes me back to that conversation we're talking about at the beginning about income or get a CDL license or get a master's degree. Ubuntu. I am because we are, right? Like it it doesn't mean that I lose my individuality, right? So I like jazz. You said you're okay with it. That's not that doesn't mean that we're not in com- in community, but we cannot be independent of each other in the land. And everything else and the animals. And it's amazing how we've so it's not amazing because it's the only thing known about this rugged individualism of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And this is the way things happen. So 
it's it's you said predefined. <laughs> so yeah, predefined memory. You're getting a set of predefined memories. And we're not, and in that we are fed the lie that we're being individual. We're not. There's no individuality really in any of this. Let's be real, because we're giving a pre-described script that we're supposed to buy into based upon the identities we're given and the location we're in. But the minute you actually are an individual, right, you are then what? Chastised by that society, by that community, by whatever it is. So when we're talking about everyone being an individual, why are we going to do it on ourselves and get the CDL, get the master's, right? At the same time, though, you're not. You're just buying into doing the exact same thing, right? You're doing the exact same thing else is doing what you're what you're told the lie and fed the lie that it's individual because you're doing it on your own in actuality no you're just tired and burnt out and so you're just buying into the same kind of script that you were told to do so and we we can break that idea and say that community does not mean giving up individuality because you never were individual to begin with <laughs> right. then we can start to see like how do we then see ourselves and one another in a way that allows individuality to come out so that those individuals collectively then form a whole. So you don't feel like you have to do everything. It's like, no, what I bring in the community is this because I know what, who I am and what I can do. And so in there, you start to see who else you can come along. Because it's not about everyone doing the same thing. It's about who's got what they have so that collectively we are, we are together. But if you are fed the idea that you can't trust nobody, if yeah. you are fed the idea that it is all about a competition, which what capitalism tells us we need to do, because you have to always be consuming, 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 like a Ponzi scheme, right? Then you don't believe in community. Therefore, you actually isolate yourself and perform community by performing the kind of what we see on TikTok, like performing the group things, right? Performing like the trips, performing the kind of retreat things, but there's no actual, there's no trust there and there's no actual truth there because you're afraid to actually speak your truth in fear of being what? As an individual. So it's this round, round robin shit that goes on and on and on that keeps us in these circles and loops. Yeah. And, and listen, even sort of that sort of chasing prevents you from even defining your own idea of success, right? So yes. success is through yes the consumption or of those things. So thank you for that. What's your journey to this work? How did we get here? Or how did you get here? Honestly, the institutions broke me. I mean, I'll be honest, right? There's a way that um, I speak this way because I lived it. So I, I was, I got my PhD by the time I was 29. So I had two masters and a PhD, first gen low income, bought the whole story, right? Bought into the idea of college and success. I was a McNair scholar. So I was trained in these kind of trio programs to like go into it. And then I started, I started in higher ed after that, teaching in a small liberal arts school than an Ivy League. And as I quote, quote unquote, got more successful, the institution kept breaking me. And so when I was at Brown, the last job I had, I had a contract job at Harvard after, but the Brown was the last institutional job I had. It was right before 2019, actually, and realizing that no matter what I did, no matter, I tried to not make waves. I tried to do the work of breaking or of, of making spaces in the system for the margins, right? And to do the kind of work I wanted to do. And no matter what I did, no matter how much I tried to make myself small and not be seen, I was thrusted into that and had a lot of things that happened that made me realize that if I keep doing this, I'm going to kill myself. Like I was sick. I was over 80 pounds heavier. I, I had all kinds of autoimmune issues. I wasn't sure what was going on. I thought I had an ulcer. And so it was in those 
it was in believing myself, right? So this is where I come back to, it was in me believing the fact that no matter what I did, no matter how much I tried to utilize and engage in these systems, Audre Lorde's master's tools, master's house, it's like the master's house is so damn raggedy and broken. No matter what you do, it will never fix it because it shouldn't be fixed, right? And I saw that working in the Ivy. So being at the echelons, what we were, we were told is where you should be going, right? I saw nothing but raggedy foundations that were still being fed to us as somehow progressive and reformative. And so it was in the breaking of my body, honestly, and my, and it helped me break my mind. And at the same time, I got introduced to my practice, my spiritual practice, or traditional practice of Lukumi, had a meeting with my now godfather, just, I just went for a consultation because I wanted to know what it was. And it was the opening up of me understanding and and connecting back with my ancestors, but also understanding who and what Orisha are as primordial beings and different cosmologies and understandings of what living in life meant that also allowed me to believe my body and believe the fact that working in these systems that keep telling me to be both docile, but also keep producing will do nothing more than actually keep feeding the whiteness in the machine that I'm trying to break against from. So that got me out of the institutions and then started doing contract work. So I had a a contract at Harvard working with the grad students in the education department for nine months after that. And it was working with them. They were lovely, nothing with them. But as I was trying to, but I was working with them to help them finish their degrees, their PhDs, so that they can go do what? Go ahead and get more jobs in these institutions while they're all talking about wanting to decolonize or push against these systems. But all they could see was working in them while at the same time trying to say they wanted to. So I kept, I saw in real time the nonsense that we feed ourselves. And it's nothing against them. I did the same thing, right? And uh, so yeah, right? I did this. Mm-hmm. I saw it. I'm like, I get it, y'all. But like, but but it's the nonsensical loop that we lie to ourselves by in order to be in these spaces. And I realized, oh, I can't even do this. I can't, I can't teach y'all or help y'all figure out anybody how to stay in a system that is I'm seeing break you. Like I'm literally seeing y'all breaking yourselves, right? For a system that, and especially at a Harvard where they're telling you to keep working, they got no money, but yet they made a whole shitload of money in the pandemic that their endowment increased, right? It makes no sense. Well, then telling you the endowment can't be touched for X, Y, and Z while you're not paying your workers anything who are, who are on the ground, right? We have to realize that we're always being lied to and they will consistently tell us that what they can't do for us while still feeding us and telling us to do it. So all of that essentially led me to, I'll say, a complete surrender. And I just said, essentially, like, you know, carry underwear, spirit, take the wheel. (laughs) And And let's see what happens if I can think about going into the public, like I've always wanted to do, be a public scholar and really start to work with folks in the public and start to talk about what does it mean to break the hold the systems have on our own psyche so that we can start to break the systems themselves. So as a public scholar, I mean, where and how do you do that and how how do you support your work and or how's your work supported and those things? Well, I'm still building. So right now I'm doing it online. So TikTok's been a great mechanism for me and a great modality. So I do a, a TikTok and I break things down into 60 minute, 60 second and three minute videos, right? That a lot of folks are engaging with. And I also have a Patreon where, because again, education is, is, education is foundational. So 
I do a book club in which we take a book every four weeks and I break it down into four week segments through a video and reflective questions and people are engaging that way. Um, I'm also working on and playing with my YouTube channel to start to do longer forms of engagement because I also want to think about uh, entertainment as part of the teachings, right? So I think there's a way that we can bring the creative arts into these kind of teachings. So I'm playing with that format too. And then also just, I do work with groups and if people, if people reach out, I do talks and I do kind of small group engagements and kind of salon type conversations like this with smaller groups so that we can start to pull apart locally. What do these things mean on the ground so that folks can start to have, basically I plant seeds so that folks can figure out what seeds they want to start to water for their location so that they can grow it there. Mm-hmm. And where, how would someone connect with your, your Patreon? How does it, how does it work for those people who may not know? Well, you can go on my website. It's just my name, drnicoletruza.com. And you can click the Patreon link there or my TikTok as well. I have a link tree where you just click and you can go right to it because it's called Knowledge Without Borders. That's what essentially what I'm doing. I'm trying to create knowledge without the borders and the constructs of the institutions. So you can connect with me there. And if you don't want to necessarily do the book club, I know a lot of folks just do support my work by subscribing and giving a blip each month because I am independently funding myself now as yeah. I'm working through. So there's a reality we live in too. Like when I talk about being anti-capitalist, it doesn't mean I'm anti-money. And that's yeah, a big no. difference. Yeah, no, they're two different things. Yeah, and, 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 and right? Yeah, and, and listen, so for anybody who doesn't get that, just just grow up. I, we can't break everything down for you. The, 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 it, what, essentially what you're saying, Tariq, is you're anti-exploitation. Yes, I am. I'm anti-exploitation. You're not anti, like, I, the lights have to stay on. You got to have water. You got to have yeah. Wi-Fi. Listen, I get it. Right. This is, I'm trying to also think about what does exchange mean? So like if I'm feeding folks with my knowledge, how do you feed me back? Oh, and I think that is, that's the that's the kind of economy that a lot of us outside of these systems is how the goddamn world works, honestly. Right. It's an yeah. exchange. It's a bartering system. And for me, so like I, I feel like so for me, it's more about I feed out and, I, and I'm, I'm asking folks to feed back so that there is a way that if you don't want to go to college or you can't go to a higher education, I taught it. I mean, I'm an educated person who taught at Ivy Leagues and uh, and small liberal arts who was one that takes that knowledge and put it into the public because there's no need for it to be behind a $60,000 paywall. Right. So I think it's also about breaking the hold that higher ed has had on gatekeeping knowledge. I don't care what the industry says. It makes no sense that you have to take out that much debt and loan to be fed information that K through 12 refuses to actually engage in. Right. So I'm also going to break up that, too. Yeah, and listen, just because we don't have time, but we can thank Reagan for this debt yes. and this debt structure <laughs> as well. So anyway, but but before we go, I do want to talk about that space for a minute. And we have in the United States right now, the Supreme Court is weighing affirmative action and higher ed admissions. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, they're going to roll it back. <laughs> they're going to roll it back. I mean, the minute they roll back Roe v. Wade, that was the impetus to roll back. After this, it's going to be the Indian Child Welfare Act. They're going to go for Brown. They're going to go for all of these things that opened up space for us. But I'll say this, too. Affirmative action was always a Band-Aid. It was always a Band-Aid to a larger structural issue because what affirmative action did 
was he was trying to skirt around actually tackling the foundational issues around structural racism by making these criteria. But the criteria themselves benefited mostly white women. So if you look at other systems, the University of California system did a different way of ensuring that there was non-discrimination within admissions policies that actually did a better job than affirmative action guidelines did. But affirmative action and how it's being used right now is nothing... It's frustrating because it's a conservative effort. The man behind all of this is a white man who was being funded by Republicans and conservative think tanks who was using Asian American students as the face of this, right? So affirmative action is also, it's being used as a racist dog whistle to continue the idea that whiteness and white folks are oppressed, right? There's a way that oppression is, how do I say this? Oppression is lucrative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so affirmative action, while even if they pull it back, I think which I really do think they will. And you sure. can hear it, you hear it in what they're saying. Right. But what we can see here is this. There's a crack and a slippage in that because the what these different policies did to empower folks in different locations in the U.S. over time to understand they have a stake in it, them pulling it back lets us know the locations that we have some kind of teeth in. So I think this is about a political education that lets us know that no matter what the state does, it still has to need, it still needs the people to buy in some way and the folks aren't buying in. So even Roe v. Wade, right, when they pulled that back and they went to state rights and then they thought that was going to give them, the Republicans, the lead in those states, and they realized that women and men were like, no, this is some BS, right? You can't just keep taking that away. Now what they're trying to do, McConnell's trying to then make this now a state, a federal thing, right? A national uh, mandate that it it won't, doesn't work. So what we're seeing now with affirmative action is the ways that these kind of conservative leaning bodies are showing us that they want to double down on the removal of history and memory in the public so that they can continue this kind of nationalistic rhetoric of we're all the same when we're no, we're not. Yeah. Yeah. No. uh, So I I agree with you. It's definitely a rollback. And there's a couple of things. Uh, We had Dr. Brian Mitchell, who's with the Abraham Lincoln Center live presidential library. He focuses on reconstruction and he pointed out on an episode that the Jim Crow laws are really a, a harsh backlash against Black progress after Reconstruction of Black people yes. reclaiming their families, building businesses, building schools, and all of those things. Dr. King, for everything Martin Luther King, uh, I have a dream, so he did a whole lot more. Talking about white backlash and what have you. And so the rollback on Voting Rights Act. Yep. It's hardcore role, affirmative action, so many things. Listen, Louisiana in this in this cycle is trying to redefine who is black. black right. <laughs> so it's happening right in front. I tell people, you gotta understand this is that we are in a fight. Right. And yes, that just because you are it, just because it seems right doesn't mean that those who are benefiting from it aren't going to try to hold on to that that benefit. So we're, we're seeing it play out. And we have to believe, them, though, too. I just want to say this. We have to believe them. And this is where I get very yes. frustrated with liberals. Stop this idea of we just talk and go across the line. They have said they want power. 
They have said in the public they will take power because they have gone away from this whole idea of small government to a whole authoritarian mechanism. They have said it in the, we have got to believe them. They are coming for rights. And if we don't believe them, they will continuously keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And I think this is the important part we're in where I talk about you got to believe and feel this shit because they are, they are telling us in the public that no matter what we try to do, they will continuously move the floor. So believe the liar that they are in order to then find the truth for ourselves. Amen. Amen. No, absolutely on that. And with that, and, and let me say, I when I, I started this and saying I really want, enjoy it, was looking forward to talking to you, it's done all of that and more. So, so thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you for that. We ask everyone sort of at the end a couple of things. And I want to ask you, what does it mean to live well? I think what it means to live well is to is to feel and experience, actually experience life, right? And, and and be able and be okay with quote unquote failing or quote unquote something not whatever making it is, because living well means you actually experience life and have those experiences. And I think Maya Angelou said, does that beautifully and it wrote about it beautifully in her various books, the three books she had from the Why Know Why the Kids Were Sings On. It's like you experience life and then life gives you the experience back to help you understand what living for you means. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk about black joy or joy for a minute in your memory. What is black, what songs or what, what musicians or what artists, musical artists feed Dr. Truesdale, Dr. Truesdale's black joy. What feeds you from a music standpoint in your memory? Oh, oh, so much. So first what feeds me is house, house music, Chicago house music, because it brings me back to grade school and high school. Like I went to Catholic school on this on the far south side. So if y'all know, you know, go to the parties, you pay the five dollars, go in the basement. I do <laughs> you know. got church yeah. upstairs, I do you put work downstairs, right? So it's yeah. uh, it reminds me of it reminds me of uh it just reminds me of, of of growing up in a way that I always forget that when it came down to it, no matter how much I didn't like something, when I heard the beat and heard the music and saw the footwork, I could never do it, but I love my friends doing it, right? Um, right. It, it brought joy. So that and also big, I love music. So I'm a big um, soul and R&B fan. So anything that brings me back down into a, a, like a deep emotional reaction, whether it be sadness or happiness, brings it out. So like a Mary J. Blige, right? Or a Mariah Carey, but I also like some of the new artists like Kirby and, um, oh, I love Meg Thee Stallion because there's different ways. Right, right, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Because it's, it's an unapologetic. Unapologetic, yes. Right, of everything. Whether you like it, it don't matter, but it's like, it's going to sit here. And it's She's like, I'm here. It's here, I'm here. And I, and I want to be confident in it. People call it arrogance, it's not. For me, it's a confidence in being like, no, I know who I am, how I look, where I go. And so I'm just going to show it to you. And I think that's a beautiful example of what it means to live in blackness and joy without living, without feeling it through oppression. Yeah. You just taking up space. How do you take up space, right? So you take up space, to me, that is joy. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I will, I will tell you this, check out, I don't know, or are you familiar with Ama Piano? Mm-hmm. My piano is a South Af- or Southern African sound and is very much house and dance based. And you will hear it throughout Johannesburg and Harare. And so it pulls on house. It also pulls on Afro beats and it's its own sound. It is 
A-M-A-P-I-N-O, my piano. I think I spelled that right if I didn't, but you will dig that. So that website is NicoleTruesdale.com or is it Dr. What is it? NicoleTruesdale.com. So D-R, D-R, NicoleTruesdale.com. So Dr. Nicole Truesdale, we thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Everyone else, I want you all to hit that site and uh, follow her. And it is rare that we have the opportunity to really be engaged in scholarship at a high level and in a way that's meaningful and practical, that's not behind a, a paywall, but at the same time, we got to have Wi-Fi to, to exactly. do that. This, as far as I know, you still have to pay for that, but we really appreciate you. And I, and I want people to support you and your work and really wish you all the absolute very best. And one day we have to talk again about um, my trips to Brazil and to Cuba and experiences with Candoble and uh, Santeria and, and those things. But for now, we just, we're just going to sign off and really say thank you for, for being here. For sure. Thanks so much. All right. Everybody else, uh, stay tuned and we appreciate you. Like it, download it, subscribe, leave a comment. That engagement is so important and keeping the work going. We appreciate you. And I am out. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.